you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Treasury Cast, the show that celebrates the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. Proud member of the Fire and Border Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And if you were listening to this episode the day it comes out, you may be uh, the same day going to see the Shang-Chi Legend of the Ten Rings movie. So to celebrate the release of this movie, we're going to be talking about Special Collector's Edition number one. Number one was the only one. Uh, Savage Fists of Kung Fu. To uh, help me talk about this fun comic book are two fellow network all-stars, Ryan Daly. Hi, Ryan. When three are called and stand as one, as one <laughs> they'll fight, there will be done. For each is born anew, the tiger's son. <laughs> you have that jade paw that I gave you in the mail. You have that sound. <laughs> and uh, also joining us, making his debut on Treasury Cast, I can't believe it, Max Romero. Hi, Max. Hey, Rob. Uh, I just want to point out that from now on, I would like to be referred to as the mountain which steals breath. <laughs> Fair enough, Mountain That Steals Breath. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hold you to that. So uh, anyway, boys, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this treasury. As soon as they announced the Shang-Chi movie, which was like, what, like two years ago they talked about? Maybe three? I immediately was like, well, now I know we're going to we got to cover this treasury. Uh, and so it was just a matter of waiting for this movie to come out. So before we talk about the book, uh, we got to get into a little bit of the history with this character and this movie. So are you guys planning on seeing the movie opening weekend? Ryan, start with you. Yeah, I am uh, probably going to see it uh, a Saturday matinee with a buddy of mine. And yeah, it's we will explain a little bit more as we get into it. Um, I I don't think the movie will be hardly anything like the Master of Kung Fu comic no. books that I love, but inexplicably, I still think it looks really good as a kind of completely different genre type of movie, um, a little bit more fantastical and and more in the superhero realm, which it kind of needs to be in order to, to, you know, mesh with the, the Marvel cinematic universe that they've established. Uh, so I think it looks really good and I'm excited to see these all new characters. Um, any of which played by actors that I'm not familiar with, but I'm, I'm excited for, I love the the new representation. Um, I, I think what black Panther did, I, I think this will do for the Asian American culture too. For, and, and that audience. So I'm looking forward to it. All right. We can hope so. Max, what about you? Uh, you know, well, the, a lot of that has to do with um, what 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 the theaters around here have uh, set up as far as, you know, just pandemic sort of things and all that. And my favorite theater actually closed down because of the, of the pandemic. Mm. Uh, so that's a logistically it's a little more difficult, but I would love to see it on the on opening weekend. I'm not sure if they're going to do the same thing that they that they've been doing with Disney Plus of the the same day release not right away not right I, I away believe, yeah. i believe shang chi is going to get 45 days exclusive oh. to theaters so about yeah. six six and a half weeks before it goes to disney Plus. they don't want to wade back into that contractual thicket that they mm-hmm. got into with Black no. yeah. Yeah. No. but i also yeah. i also think they're limiting its time in the theater 
I, I could be I could be completely wrong about this, but I think it's not going to play in China, which will like cut its box office wow. in half, whatever yeah. it's doing. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I, I heard that it's not going to play in China at all. So any move, any money they're expecting to get from the box office, they think it's going to be in the first five or six weeks. Yeah, I heard the same thing, which is a shame because you would think that that would be an audience that would really respond to, you know, this, this positive portrayal of, you know, that, that culture, that Asian, well, I mean, we got to remember this is a a thing with very strict about what, how they like their, their homeland represented in media and what they're like. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, you know, it's a, it's a whole thing. So yeah, it's surprising, but not surprising, I guess (laughs) that that's happening. But um, yeah, no, but I I would love to be able to see it uh, as it's opening because Shang-Chi is one of my favorite characters from, you know, as as, almost as long as I can remember. He's been he's been a character that I've been really into and kind of feel possessive about. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, when it was first announced, you know, like Ryan was kind of um, uh, uh, referring to, I this is obviously not going to be the Shang-Chi that I read uh, in comics. And it's going to be something very different, but it still looks really good. I was a little hesitant at first, but then I started seeing the cast come in and I started hearing what uh, uh, Simu Liu, who is playing Shang-Chi, uh, the way he was approaching the character. And that really kind of gave me hope. And then when clips started coming out, I was like, okay, this is going to be something different, but I'm still with it. You know, as, as Ryan said, this is something that I am going to be into. So I'm, I, you know, whether it's the opening weekend or if, if I'm going to have to wait a little while, I'm looking forward to watching this. Yeah, me too. I'm, I will be seeing it this weekend with a friend of the network, Corey Drew. I'm very excited to, to, to see this movie. I will say uh, I don't have a huge history with the comic book, and we can, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But when they first announced that they were doing this, I was really hopeful that this meant that the Marvel Universe, the cinematic universe, was going to expand out a little in terms of style. You know, they like, oh, they're going to, you know, now that they're done Infinity War and they're going to go into like these, you know, I don't want to, I don't mean this in a bad way, like B-level characters, they're going to, they're going to be able to kind of broaden their horizons of their filmmaking. Well, I kind of see that that's not happening. Mm. It kind of looks like Shang-Chi has been drafted into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to, and I guess this was probably unrealistic. They were never going to make like a 70s style karate movie. For the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they just weren't going to do that. Um, the Marvel brand is just too durable and too entrenched in people's in pop culture now to go that far. Ironically enough, I think it would be if it was a DC movie, you might get that because they're all over the place uh, over there stylistically. But that said, I'm excited that they're doing this. I'm really glad that they that they realized with the Infinity War, it's like, look, we can't go any further down this alley. So let's go down this other thing. Let's try something else. And get, and I was re- I'm really thrilled that that a character who has generally not been in the Marvel universe for a long time is 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 getting this kind of push. Um, and yeah, as you talk about the re- representation is great. I mean, it, Marvel is expanding the audience's horizons in different ways, uh, which is great. So I'm really excited that they're they're doing this now. Max, you talked about the comic book. I will say I barely read the comic book growing up because I hardly ever saw it. Mm-hmm. It just was not on sale a lot of times in my neighborhood. I don't, you know, I, I just, now the, my fondest memory, not fondest, my most strong memory of the Master of Kung Fu comic is a house ad that they ran in the very early 80s. And it was this shot of Shang-Chi, I believe it's drawn by Paul Glacey, 
uh, but they were talking about that the book is by Doug Minnick and Mike Zek. And it was like all in red. And it was just the shot of Shang-Chi and that's it. Like with his hands up and there was, there was no other panels. There were no villains, nothing. And I remembered that ad being like burned in my memory because it made me think, Ooh, this book is like kind of different. It doesn't look like your typical Marvel ad, you know, which has to have like Dr. Doom and the vulture, you know, they get like 17 word balloons. <laughs> they just, to me, they were like selling it just on that image. And I was like, wow, that looks really cool. But it was not a book that I ever saw that, but I always kind of liked, and every once in a while, like if I was in the, the Poconos, I would see one and I would get it and I liked it, but it was just not a book I, I saw. But nevertheless, I always liked the character and I liked that there was this kind of fun corner of the Marvel universe that didn't seem terribly connected to everything else. I mean, obviously he was in the Marvel universe. He met Spider-Man and things like that. But for the most part, he was kind of off doing his own thing in the Marvel universe. So always like that. But Max, you said that you really love this comic. Well, I, I love this character. It, sort of like you, uh, you know, it wasn't always easy to find uh, Shang-Chi comics, but there's, there's uh, the way I got into it was kind of a backward way. I remember reading a Spider-Man comic, and I can't remember which one it is now, but uh, White Tiger was featured in it. <laughs> and of course, you know, and I was like, oh, how is all about White Tiger, right? And so, but trying to find out more, you know, I mean, there's references and there's different things. And White Tiger got me into Iron Fist, which got me into Zhang-Chi. And, you know, I, I, I reference this almost all the time, but the my aunt's bookstore, when I, when I would hang out at my aunt's bookstore when I was, as a kid, she would sit me down with comics. And a lot of those were Bronze Age comics. And, you know, and she had a lot of the um, of the magazine, which was the Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. Uh, and she had, you know, comics. And I would see Shang-Chi show up as a guest star in other books. Uh, and that was always a thrill for me. And when, um, when I was able to, I would pick up his comics and uh, even manage to find some back issues here and there. Because at the time, it was funny because it was sort of like, like you said, you know, kind of, he wasn't a Spider-Man. He wasn't a big thing. And he was kind of on the back end of a wave of uh, the karate kung fu, the karate and kung fu trend, uh, which, you know, kept going. But I don't think it was enough to, to you know, after Bruce Lee died, that kind of tapered off with him until much later. But yeah, when when I could find it, I definitely picked it up and I definitely looked for it. And I learned whatever I could about him. And one of the things that I really like about uh, Shang-Chi, and this goes back to the movie looking so much different than what the comic is, is that Shang-Chi was basically Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon. <laughs> he, you know, he was uh, a spy, essentially, doing spy stuff. But I also really enjoyed the idea. The, I really liked the idea of him being so good at Kung Fu that he's just this normal person who is just extraordinarily good at Kung Fu that he, even superheroes, you know, regularly get their butt kicked by him. Hmm. Um, and yeah, and, you know, and the thing is, is that that was part of that whole thing. You know, I, I was raised on, you know, Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, Sonny Chiba, uh, the various Shaw brothers movies, all those sort of things. And so I was primed for, for a character like this. And later when I was able to pick up back issues and find out more about him and pick up magazine, the magazine on my own, that really just solidified all that. Now, Ryan, White Tiger, that was your nickname in high school, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, Tigre Blanco, I believe it was. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Um, I, I never read the comics growing up because for, I, I just, I never saw Shang-Chi. The character wasn't around. And for a long time, he, he had kind of like vanished from the, the, the popular, you know, zeitgeist, especially in Marvel, because they could never reprint so much of his stuff because of rights issues. Because when they created him in the seventies, all of his supporting characters were all the creations of Sax Romer, right. this pulp novelist going back to like the twenties and thirties who created Fu Manchu. And they, so they were all tied up with the, their rights. And then they're, I mean, obviously depictions of race and ethnicity, there was just sensitivity issues. So it just became complicated. So they kind of like buried it. Um, but at some point about a, decade ago now or something marvel made uh, an arrangement with the sax romer estate to to do some reprints and like the whole master of kung fu series and the deadly hands of kung fu like magazines they have all been reprinted in omnibus formats and they have been digitized so you can read them uh, at least uh, the the color issues you can read on marvel unlimited so a couple of years ago when i first heard rumblings that maybe they would do a movie of this i started reading it on Marvel Unlimited, and I just started from like the first appearance, kind of going in, and he's got a great origin story. And and for those like if you if you're tuning into this and you know nothing about this character, the basic premise is: um, imagine you've been trained your entire life believing that your father is Batman, and you will eventually take his place as the new Batman when you become an adult. But on your birthday, you discover, oh, he's not Batman. My dad is Ra's al Ghul. <laughs> And everything I believed was a lie. And he, he walks away, he tries to, and then he gets pulled into by this British spies to try and basically take his father down and, and, and sort of redeem himself that way. Um, but I, I was reading the early kind of issues and I was like, okay, this is kind of good. Reminds me of Iron Fist. And you know, it, it's interesting, but around issue 29, um, and it didn't start at issue one. So that we're about like two years into it. This is when Doug Munch and Paul Galassi take over and their mission was every like three or four issues is a story arc that feels just like a Sean Connery, James Bond movie with Bruce Lee from Enter the Dragon thrown in, in the mix. It's got all of those things. If you love James Bond stories, you will love those, uh, those uh, like the, the Doug Munch written master of Kung Fu stories. And then, uh, Paul Galassi was on the book until issue 50. Um, and I actually have a copy of issue 50 signed by Paul Galassi that was signed, uh, thanks to our friend of the network, Dr. Ange. He got that one signed for me. So wow. thank you. Um, and then Mike Zach took over for like the next 50 issues. And then Gene Day was on it for a while. So it's just, yeah, like the, the book, I haven't read every issue, but I've read a bunch. I have not actually read many of the black and white magazines. And we'll talk more about those in this, uh, and when we get to the treasury. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I love the feel of it. It's, it's such a, yeah, it's just, it's, it's like this weird love letter to sixties and early seventies, James Bond with this Kung Fu protagonist who, who's just thrown in. And yeah, some of it is hard to read because racism and racist comments and things like that. But, um, but it's still really, really good. Yeah, yeah, I just want to throw in real quick too. One of the things that I like so much about Shang Chi as a character is that he is—he's uh, reluctant about his life of violence, and he is um, ashamed of basically of of being raised to be a weapon. And and it's mentioned in this treasury also. But Fu Manchu is 
he's disappointed because he he has lost the weapon, but also because his son has chosen, quote unquote, a path of peace. And really, that's all Shang-Chi wants. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. He doesn't necessarily want to be doing all the things that he's doing, but he does because he has a duty to stop his father. And also because he thinks that that is that by stopping his father, he will bring about peace. And I think that's a very interesting aspect to that character who essentially is supposed to be beating the hell out of everybody. Uh, <laughs> even, yeah, even his name, Shang-Chi, they, they describe it translates to... I think the rising of the spirit or the mm-hmm. rising and lifting of the spirit. So his, he's all about sort of this philosophy and this sort of en- enlightenment and, and, and eschewing these sort of physical trappings of, of violence. But he just keeps getting sucked into these things because he witnesses the violence around him. And he kind of says, I can, I can combat this better than a lot of people. So mm-hmm. he, yeah, I think it's, he, it's the Godfather. He keeps getting pulled back in. <laughs> and that ad is, I know exactly what ad you're talking about. I think everybody who's ever picked up a Bronze Age comic knows what ad you're talking about. <laughs> and that is, is so a beautiful good. ad. <laughs> it's so well done. It's so cool. Max, you mentioned like, uh, you know, the Kung Fu f- craze that Marvel was jumping on. And as we all know, Marvel jumped on every craze they could. Mm-hmm. And some of them they rode to oblivion, you know, mm-hmm. and others they were able to make something out of it. Like, you know, we talked about on over on Human Fly, Human Fly right there. I mean, they were yeah. they were really wanted that to be a huge thing. It, it turned out not to be. They jumped on, you know, Rom the Space Knight, like one of the clunkiest toys ever made. And they managed to get like, I don't know, like eight years <laughs> of comics yeah. out of Rom. And then this thing, I mean, people people that are too young to remember, you know, or too, just too young, they weren't around how huge the Kung Fu craze was in the seven. I mean, it was huge. And related to that, a couple of, um, a couple of weeks ago, we were listening to music at, at home while we were working and they played uh, the song. Everybody was Kung Fu fighting, which is a huge song. And I have this hobby now of like uh, looking up when, when I hear like a hit, when a one hit wonder, I'm like, did the guy or the girl who sang it, did they write it? Because if they wrote it, they're probably still living off that song because the songwriting is where you make the money, not the performance. Right. So I was just sort of curious. I was like, yeah, everybody was Kung Fu fighting. That was a really big song. I looked it up. Guess how many copies of that song were sold in 1975. They, take a guess guys, Max, how many uh, copies do you think of they sold in that? I am going to say what, what's platinum. Uh, I want to say, I'm going to say two, 2.5 million. Okay, Ryan? Six. Eleven. God. Eleven million copies of wow. that song. And it's like, I mean, and that guy's like basically still, he's still around, still living off that song. And good for him. You know, you write something <laughs> that sells eleven million, you deserve to be rich. And, but I mean, not only did, did Shang-Chi have his own comic book, he had his own black and white magazine, which this treasury is pulled from, The Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. It's like, you can count on one hand the number of Marvel characters that had a color comic and a black and white magazine simultaneously. It's like Spider-Man. And no, actually Spider-Man didn't even have that. You have Hulk, mm-hmm. Punisher, uh, like Conan. That was about it. Dracula and Howard the Duck. Dracula mm-hmm. and Howard the Duck. Right. There you go. I mean, but it's, it's amazing. So like Shang-Chi was during the seventies, huge. And the fact that the book ran 126 issues which is, again, pretty far into the 80s, is, is really pretty amazing. And then there have been revivals ever since. So it's not surprising that they did a treasury. When I first discovered this book, I never knew it existed. I didn't have it as a kid. I never certainly never saw it 
on the newsstands. And I've, I've never been able to find an ad for it uh, in any Marvel comic. But I, it was back when I was you know, researching the treasuries and seeing what holes I had in my collection. And I was like, wait a minute, they did a Kung Fu? I didn't even know that. But that says something about how popular Shang-Chi was, that they gave him his own treasure. And by the way, the part of the reason this book is kind of hard to find, even online to Google it, it was, as I mentioned, it was, it was uh, presented as Special Collector's Edition Number 1. It is the only issue of that title. They don't even have Marvel in there. So you don't even really know to look. You can't type in Special Collector's Edition and expect to find anything. <laughs> Why this wasn't just Marvel Treasury Edition Number whatever, I have no idea. But nevertheless, so that, this thing was like a one-off. Um, and they never did another one. Maybe they never sell, didn't sell. But it's curious because this whole collection is drawn from the black and white magazine. So they figured, I guess, nobody had read the black and white magazine or it had, by that point it had been canceled. So let's color these stories, which is fun. That's a nice bonus for this treasury. Let's color these stories, put them in color for the first time, and then collect them all in this treasure edition. So it makes it sort of almost like a little trade paperback edition. It's well, really amazing. Well, somebody else that we know at least has has read this one because um, the the comic series Criminal by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Ah, that's right. Um, he they've done two special editions that are like magazine sized in format, and one of them is called Savage Sort of Criminal, based <laughs> on like Co- Savage Sort of Conan. And Andy Leyland and I actually reviewed that on the episode. Um, and then the other one was called Savage Fists of Criminal. <laughs> Um, sort of like this one. So at least we know Ed Brubaker was at least familiar with the title of the magazine, if not the content. It's great. It's great. It's absolutely. So this, this magazine came out or this treasury came out on September 2nd, 1975. The cover is by Gil Kane and Dan Adkins. Uh, it's interesting that it's not called master of Kung Fu, even though that was the comic, I guess they just really wanted to get Kung Fu in there. Uh, because of course there will be other characters represented in the story. And we see this cover, uh, but with featuring Shang-Chi, Iron Fist, and the Sons of the Tiger. So, guys, what do you think of this cover? Max, we'll start with you. I really like this cover a lot, actually. <laughs> um, I think it's very clean. It's it, It's got, you know, five different characters on it doing five different things, but they're all coming out at you from the, um, you know, from the perspective of the reader. That are, you know, and Shang-Chi is right there in the front with doing a flying foot kick. And the... Sons of the Tiger are there. They have the tiger. They have the, you know, there's a lot of elements and it really shouldn't work as well as it does. But for, for some reason, it, to me, it really does. You know, this, this is an era, and, and I, this is going to be blaspheming to a lot of people, but I like earlier era Gil Kane more than later Gil Kane. Uh, I, don't th- I, I think a lot of people would say that, actually. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I, I, I think it looks really well, really good because. You know, these are distinct characters doing different things while kind of doing the same thing, I guess. You know, they're all doing, you know, these kung fu moves, these karate moves. Uh, but if I had seen this on the stand, I would, I definitely, not only from because of the size, but just because of the action. There, there's this, it's not a static kind of page to me. And the perspective is great. The, I, it's, it's a very appealing cover to me. Absolutely. Ryan, what do you think? I kind of disagree. Um, I, I, I like, I like Gil Kane, Gil Kane covers. Um, and the only reason I kind of disagree is because if you compare this to any cover of the magazine, Deadly mm. Hands of Kung Fu, or even the Master of Kung Fu comic, of which Gil Kane did a lot of those covers, actually, um, they're just so, 
I mean, especially like the painted covers and everything like that, what you get from the magazine and stuff like that. They're just so cool. And I know that he was trying to throw in three different sets of characters that didn't really interact as much. So it's, it's, it's not a bad cover. I like it. I just, I can't help but compare it to the other covers from the work that this is representing. And I think it kind of pales in comparison to those covers. So, eh, I, I, yeah, I like, I, I think actually, I think the fact that the characters are just kind of floating in the center in front of the yin yang symbol, I, I think all of the text on top and on bottom help kind of break that up and actually make it a little bit more dynamic. Um, so yeah, good. I don't love it. Yeah. I, have to, gonna... I have to agree with that. The, if you compare it to the, the Shang-Chi comics or the, or Diddly Hands of Kung Fu, I mean, especially Diddly Hands of Kung Fu, mm-hmm. this, you know, it, it really pales uh, I, as a standalone. I think it works fine. Um, but yeah, those, those, uh, Deadly Hands covers were just something else. So those are yeah. amazing. I mean, they're all like Neil Adams and stuff. Right. I mean, they are yeah. amazing. I I love this cover. So I love the the red, the Superman red. To me, it is just it. If you could take the trade dress off of this, it would make an amazing T shirt. If you just put <laughs> it on a red shirt, I just think it's really gorgeous. To me, it's very eye popping. Um, and so, speaking of covers, uh, Marvel has a curious choice on the inside cover. Um, instead of running. The covers from Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, which these are reprinted from, which, you know, would have been nice to see. They decided to run Shang-Chi related covers from Marvel's British Weekly's Avenger series, <laughs> which is like a bizarre choice because that has nothing to do with anything that goes on in this comic. And it features like Spider-Man predominantly. Like, what? why are they? What? And, you know, it's like it's like originally presented in Avengers 74. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? Avengers 74? And I realized this is that's the Mar- that's the uh, the British avengers but that's a you would think that considering they had as we just talked about these gorgeous neil adams painted covers to run on the inside covers you think they would go with those not british weeklies what a strange choice yeah the, that is it possible this here. sorry is it possible this magazine this this treasury was marketed more in england or europe than it was in the u.s i mean you said you, it's it's so hard to find and it's got this weird title is it possible this was published over there or I mean, the indicia says no but it's possible that they maybe felt that the market was stronger for it over there maybe i yeah yeah i do find i said i do find it strange that i could i've never found an ad in a marvel american comic for this treasury i've never seen one and i've scoured every marvel comic from the 70s for treasury ads because that's my, my side hustle is finding the treasury ads and i've never seen one so yeah maybe Maybe this, maybe this was a bigger thing in, in Britain than it was over here. That's maybe. So anyway, so the, so the cover, as I mentioned, is by Kane and Ike. And so these uh, stories uh, that we're going to be talking about are reprinted from the Deadly Hands of Kung Fu special plus Deadly Hands of Kung Fu numbers uh, one and two, although they, they're not really in order. The first story is in four chapters. It is basically the bulk of the, the treasury. So we're going to go through, I'm going to talk as fast as I can with these, um, these synopses. Each chapter is done by a different creative team. So you've got chapter one. The, 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 the overall story is called The Master Plan of Fu Manchu. Uh, and chapter one is by Doug Menick, Frank McLaughlin, and the, uh, the always reliable Krusty Bunkers. So uh, while walking on the streets of New York late at night, Iron Fist hears someone moaning in pain. He finds a wounded man who thinks that Iron Fist is there to kill him. Iron Fist reassures him that he is not, and the man explains that he's a UN delegate targeted for assassination. Iron Fist is then attacked by two such assassins, but manages to fight them off. 
One, one of them runs away to a secret headquarters and Iron Fist follows him and overhears the leader of the group mention that five other UN delegates are secured in another room. Iron Fist defeats the entire gang and smashes his way into that room only to find mannequins. So that's the first chapter of this story. So, uh, Ryan, what did you think of this opening volley? Um, so first of all, I should say, and I, Rob, I don't remember if we talked about this when we did, uh, we covered a, a treasury, a Spider-Man treasury that had a Spider-Man and Iron Fist team up. Yes. But Iron Fist has one of my favorite costumes of all of comics. Hmm. Um, like, I, I just, I don't know what it is, but like between the color and the weird collar and just like the mask that covers the top half and like the, the lines around, like, I don't know. I just, I like one of my top five costume designs from Marvel is Iron Fist. Um, so I'll always be excited to like read something new with him. This chapter, eh, it's, it's okay. Hmm. Um, Doug Munch was, uh, was writing the character for a little while around, around this time. Um, he, he took over after like the, the Iron Fist went through a couple of writers at the beginning. They just had a lot of turnover and weren't really sure what to do with him until Chris Claremont and John Byrne, who listeners might've heard of those guys. Hmm. Um, they got a hold of him before they did X-Men and really kind of took off with him. Um, this, I mean, yeah, I, I, I like this. I don't know that the treasury size necessarily enhances this art, uh, and really, I mean, other than just seeing it on a bigger scale is cool. Um, I don't know if they do a whole lot of else with it, but yeah, I like seeing Iron Fist kick ass. I like seeing the action. Um, but as as the first chapter of a story, eh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. Max, what did you think? Uh, I liked it. it. I think it's definitely a first chapter. <laughs> it's it's all it's a lot of setup without a lot of advancing the plot necessarily. It, it's really just kind of setting up what's going to come next. Uh, I do like the art by uh, Frank McLaughlin and, and Krusty Bunkers. I, I thought it of, of the art in this book, I think it might be the art I prefer the most. Um, and just because some of it gets really into caricature later and a little sloppy on faces and one of the things that I like, <laughs> it's, it's such a small thing, but one of the things I like is that you can see Iron Fist's eyes, which is, you know, something that, uh, especially at a distance, you know, of course, obviously you're not going to draw that, many, that much detail, but I like being able to see a character's eyes. I kind of hate the, the current trend of everyone has some sort of, uh, you know, plastic or glass or whatever over there, <laughs> over the their Spider-Man, Batman eye thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I, I think that makes, uh, that gives some good expression to to Iron Fist in particular, who I agree with uh, Ryan has, you know, a, a very distinctive um, costume that shouldn't work, but does. I mean, this is this bright green and this bright yellow and the high collar. You know, slippers. And He's wearing slippers. Slippers <laughs> and the bridge and the half mask and the three quarter sleeves. I mean, none of it really An awesome chest work. tattoo. Too. Yes. Yeah, with awesome the, low cut, the low V cut on the down to yeah. the navel. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't just put his logo on a shirt. You know, he's he tattoos it right on his chest, <clears throat> and you know, it's I, I I liked it, and I thought what um, one of the things I appreciated actually was the um, coloring by Phil Rachelson. I think it's very naturalistic. Um, a lot of the stories that we'll see later on go really overboard with uh, <laughs> the, the coloring, the, the skin tone, especially for the for the Asian characters. Uh, but this one is very uh, even toned. I, th- I think it looks 
it looks good in those terms. Uh, and the action is really good. I thought, you know, the, the action scenes are, um, well done. It's different kinds of sort of things. Uh, the writing actually tells you what the, <laughs> what the different, uh, moves that Iron Fist is doing. Um, one of the panels that I really like is on page eight at the very end where, you know, uh, uh, Iron Fist has been talking about his different moves and how he can read the other opponent and all this stuff. And he goes in, but sometimes you just need to break someone's arm. <laughs> you know, and he just kind of has that arm over his shoulder and you just hear pop crack. And, <laughs> you know, I, 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 uh, I, I thought it worked really well in terms of the action story wise. Like I said, it doesn't really move things forward. It's more just to set up uh, the, the, ch- the chapters that follow this. Right. One of the things that you know, you know, you, you know that, that they want to get to is like they're they're dying to get to the action. So it's sort of like, all right, let's just do the minimal plot, Iron Fist, okay, and then he's chasing some guys, and now now five pages of fighting, and that's what you're there for. <laughs> that's what you want to see is Iron Fist smash stuff. Uh, so that's cool. Um, so some of the inking varies again; it's by the Krusty Bunkers, so you know that it was definitely different people uh, contributing to it. But uh, but yeah, I've always loved the Iron Fist costume. I've always loved Iron Fist. I've loved Power Man and Iron Fist. As a as a book and his character, so um, I was happy to see him see him here. Even though it's kind of, um, we actually we'll get to the epilogue. There's sort of a funny epilogue with uh, with Iron Fist. So let's go on to chapter two. Uh, it is by Chris Claremont and Herb Trimpey, uh, and it features the Sons of the Tiger. So the Sons of Ti- Sons of the Tiger arrive in New York for a martial arts tournament. They are barely off the tarmac before they are attacked by a group of masked assassins. The Sons uh, make quick work of them, and then later that night, they're at their hotel room watching the news talk about the very attack they just survived. One of the Sons of the Tiger, Lynn, sees a news report about the, meeting, uh, about the meeting at the UN the next day, and his tiger medallion tingles, telling him something is wrong. The Sons of the Tiger go to the UN the next day, just in time to see a group of armed thugs kidnap the U.S. delegation and escape into a helicopter. Okay, Ryan, so what did you think of Chapter 2? I liked this one a little bit more. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Um, and part of it was at the time I read, I, when I first read this treasury, this was my first exposure to the Sons of the Tiger. Um, like I said, I, I have very little experience with the Deadly Hands of Kung Fu magazine. Um, I knew White Tiger, but I didn't know the sort of precursors with these three guys. I had heard of them, but I hadn't actually read them. And then once I kind of, once I got them in this story, and then they come back in a later story that we'll get to in a few minutes, um, there's something very after-school TV about them. I don't know, like, <laughs> but just the fact that they're three martial arts brothers who all have kind of like, very similar dress and like gi style like clothes but like even that like but one is asian one is white one is black they all have kind of a little bit of a different style but it's like very in like very purposely like we're appealing to everybody but like any, any one of our audiences can tune into like this and and feel themselves one um so i just kind of part of it was just the novelty of these these characters that i really hadn't seen before um i just tried in because i was like this is kind of cute um, I don't think the art in this one is as strong and I will always have a kind of appreciation for Herb Trimpey because of his long work on the Hulk and because he did the first year of G.I. Joe, but his art doesn't excite me. Uh, I, I like it. I think he's, it's passable, but it's it, like, I, I think he, I think he's fine, but it just, I'm not going to be like, oh, that's really, you know, really incredible. Um, so I, yeah, this chapter again was interesting. Um, I liked the, the voice kind of changed because we don't have whenever you like the first 
like 20 issues of Iron Fist were all in the second person with you. So Doug Munch kept to that in the previous chapter. Now, when we're switching out of that, I think it reads a little easier. Um, so yeah, I, I like this one. I didn't think the art was as strong, but I thought the story and the script were stronger. If that makes sense. You see that? I the Sons of the Tiger feels very Mod Squad, mm-hmm. uh, and and you could definitely see them with like a TV show. You know, mm-hmm. in the seventies, you could have seen that. The Sons of the Tiger have never been my favorites. It was <laughs> it was they were always kind of even when I saw them in other comics. You know, just uh, making cameos, they kind of bugged me. I wanted them like, okay, just just go away. Get, you know, let these other guys do the work. But I I enjoyed this story. I thought I thought it was. Um, I, I thought it did a good job of linking the the previous chapter. Uh, it was interesting in, in a sense of we're getting that Kung Fu spy vibe from it, which I really uh, enjoy a lot. Uh, and, you know, I mean, cause that was, you know, that was the, those were the Kung Fu movies that, you know, that were, <laughs> you know, that we used to watch on, on, uh, on Sunday afternoons and the, you know, I, I think it, it helps to advance the story a little bit more the the herb trimpy art is oh boy it's surprisingly bad <laughs> it's i i really don't think it's it's very good at all uh the faces change from page to page uh the inking is so heavy i thought i was going to need a weight belt and it's just um and so in some places the the faces themselves are almost ugly looking and and I can't really tell what he was trying to do here because some pages actually look like he's trying to ape Kirby almost. Oh, and, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And one of the one a question I had for you guys actually was: it, Does he ink himself? Does, uh, he, is this he, his own? Ink? I, I believe this is his own ink. There's no uh, inker credited, so I believe, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's surprising to me because some of it, some of the inking actually obscures the art. And I, and maybe that's part of what it is for me is that it suffers for that inking. Uh, but again, the story itself, I actually liked a lot and it would actually make me want to go seek out more. I mean, cause I, I, like I said, I, I read these comics as a kid, not a whole lot of them, but I, I kept up with them. And, but I always kind of skipped over the Sons of the Tigers features. Uh, and this actually would make me want to go back and, and maybe give those another look. I have no idea if this is the case or if this makes any sense, but we do know that this was originally published in a black and white magazine. So maybe trippy style. And with his inks, he was trying to do something. If he thought it would be like more grayscale or there was something, there would be some other effect on the when it was printed, maybe that informed his choices. And then, when it was restored and colored for the treasury, it kind of changed. I, I don't know. I might be just making mm-hmm. an excuse that doesn't that doesn't actually, you know, absolve him of anything like that. I mean, he's always but, a very heavy anchor. When he always yeah. was. Yeah. Uh, I go. I gotta tell you, when you say Max is funny, you're saying that you weren't never a fan of the Sons of the Tiger. My my introduction to them was sort of backwards. It was via the Fantastic Four roast comic oh, wow. from 1982 <laughs> that Herb that uh, Fred Hembeck did. And uh, do you guys either read either either of you read that comic? No, no. It's a one shot, and it's it's like forty eight pages, no ads, and it's the whole bit is the Fantastic Four is being thrown a roast by the Marvel Universe, and it's the covers by Fred Hembeck, and then almost every page is a different artist, uh, and then like like when Daredevil comes to the dais, it's drawn by Frank Miller, and like when Hulk comes to the dais, it's drawn by Sabu Sema. 
And it's, it's totally inside baseball. You have to know the Marvel Universe chapter and verse to really get it. But there's a, there's a page drawn by Kerry Gamble of Power Man and Iron Fist. Oh, and, nice. and they, you know, he was drawing their book at the time. Mm-hmm. And the whole bit is that Power Man is doing all the talking. And Iron Fist is in the background kind of like steaming because he's not going to get a chance to say anything. And Power Man's like, you know, well, I was a member of the Fantastic Four and they're a great bunch of people, blah, blah, blah. And then finally Iron Fist is like, enough, I want to have a chance to say something. And Power Man's like, okay, all right. And he goes on and, and Iron Fist starts going on and on about, uh, you know, geez, I, I feel like I've never gotten a chance to, to talk. And they're like, you know, I've done a lot for you, Power Man. Didn't I introduce you to the Sons of the Tiger? And Power Man goes, yeah, I really have to thank you for that, Iron Fist. And like, I had never seen the Sons of the Tiger to that point, but I got from the context of the joke, oh, they must be lame because this book is digging on them. That Power Man was like, oh, yeah, great, thanks. Um, that said, I kind of like them. They're very silly. And like the whole, the, the tiger jade that tingles, like, okay. All right, <laughs> you know, come on. But nevertheless, like you can see why Marvel thought they had something with the with the karate craze being so huge, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And yeah, as you said, it's you know it's got three different. There, one guy is white, one guy's black, one guy's Asian. So it's like it you know it's just to everybody. But yeah, I'd say this chapter, it's it's the most Marvelish. I mean, there's like v- super villains at the UN for Pete's right. sakes. I mean, it's very Marvel universes, but I still enjoyed it for all its sort of cheesiness. One one thing I liked about it too was that I liked the interaction of the of the three guys because mm-hmm. you know at, at some point I, there's a another where they talk kind of about the origin and they kind they were all they all had this they all went to the same school uh, and they knew each other and they were friends but they they kind of just like they don't hint at how strong their bond is uh, until later but in this story you can really kind of see. You know, th- these are three guys who hang out together all the time, and they, they act like they it. tease each other like brothers. And stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I really, I really enjoyed that. Uh, I, you know, and I think, I think I just realized part of the reason I didn't care for the Sons of the Tiger that much is, like I said, I came in to these a lot of these comics through White Tiger, and he wore these these medallions all at once. You know, he wore all three three pieces together, and I think maybe in my head I was thinking, you know, they were biting on his bit. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and then like the way one of the, part of the reason why I thought this this had like this like after school kind of or, or like you know like kids morning cartoon vibe for me um, was I mean you know dating myself in it for a different era like in the nineties there was a movie called Three Ninjas I think nah. about like these kids it was basically oh they were they were trying to tap the same audience <laughs> that Sid seen the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie but they didn't have a budget for the actual costumes so like just get three kids who look like the Hanson brothers and have them fight like ninja stuff did like, you go they, to see the sequel Three Ninjas Kick Back wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have never seen the sequel. I did watch the first one. Well, so. when I finish Citizen Kane Minute, I'll get to that. So, uh, <laughs> so all right. Well, let's 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 move on to chapter three because finally we get some Shang Chi action here in this in this uh, in this book. Uh, this chapter three is by Doug Menick, Mike Vosberg, and Dan Adkins. So uh, that night, Shang Chi, Master of Kung Fu, sees a newspaper headline about the kidnapped delegates, thinking this might be the work of his father, the legendarily nefarious Fu Manchu. Shang-Chi stows aboard a limo that leaves his father's headquarters, and it takes him to the waterfront. There, Shang-Chi sees the delegates being frog-marched onto a submarine. Shang-Chi then sneaks onto the sub, soon noticed by his father. Fu Manchu has his henchmen attack his son, giving Fu Manchu time to escape. But Shang-Chi has rescued the delegates, at least. Back at the docks, he spots the clothes of a blind man he ran into earlier laying in a heap. He finds a note revealing that the blind man was, in fact, Fu Manchu in disguise. 
Shang-Chi curses the heavens, frustrated at himself that he was so close to capturing his father, but blew the chance. So, Ryan, you mentioned how Doug Menick leaned very heavily into the James Bond aspect of Master of Kung Fu. This is the chapter. Mm-hmm. I mean, stowing aboard a submarine. I mean, wow. Escaping through the torpedo chute. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, is, I, mean, it, I mean, it's this, almost this like the, it feels weird. The third weird. act supervillain plot. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's almost like, it feels weird that, that Shang-Chi is like wandering on a sub in barefoot with it. You know what I mean? It's like this <laughs> yep. so belongs in James Bond's world. Mm-hmm, absolutely yeah yeah this is uh, yeah th- and this one picks up and this one feels the most like by the time you get to this one you're like why did the other two chapters happen <laughs> like, <laughs> why, it was really just like this was part of a magazine special that was trying to introduce all three of these characters and promote right. them all in this magazine um but really you get to this one and you feel like this is, should just be a shang chi story there's no reason to involve <laughs> iron fist and the other guys um uh, for the arts Again, I feel like I have to defend Mike Vosberg because he was the artist for the second year of G.I. Joe, which includes one of my favorite sustained story arcs uh, in the comics, despite the fact, and I think it's true in this chapter too, he's not great when it comes to action. Um, and I, I think Dan Atkins' inks do some decent to heavy lifting on this. Um, I think he's fine, but he's just, again, not an exciting artist, and, and his action isn't great, but he does more with kind of like body language, facial expressions. Again, maybe that's the inking doing a lot of the work for it. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a fun chapter, and I think that's just like the story arc where it's like, yeah, this is this kind of thing. Like, we're, you've, got, you've got Bruce Lee in the part of James Bond doing these type of actions, and it's this weird little blend that works some, for some reason. Yeah. Max, what did you think? Uh, you know, I, the way I said that the first chapter of this has my favorite art, this probably has my favorite part of the plot. Uh, I, you know, I think it's a fun story, you know, and yes, all that, the, the first two chapters are, are essentially prologue uh, to set up, um, to set up Chi meeting, you know, his father, you know, well, sort of. <laughs> or almost catching his his father, uh, we see the bright, the bridge of spies come into it, and uh, you know, it, it, and the action is just great. I mean, it is a James Bond movie. You know, it's you know, it's Shang Chi jumping on cars, sneaking up onto onto submarines, hiding in a robe, which we also saw in Human Fly, uh, <laughs> and and then getting shot out of the torpedo tube all while trying to save you know american and chinese delegates to the un it is nuts it makes no sense but without the other two chapters which i think is what you know they were the lifting that they were doing is trying to make all this make (laughs) make some sort of sense while introducing those characters but i really enjoyed it i think you get kind of that that friction that between his father and between Fu Manchu and Shang-Chi, which is, you know, the hallmark of the, of the comic itself. And, you know, I think it works well in terms of wrapping up this story. Uh, The art is, is okay. It's, it's kind of sketchy, but we do get some fight scenes. You know, we better get some fight scenes. Not all of them, look great a lot of them look kind of awkward like i don't know how the anatomy would work for, for someone trying to do these things or the, at least the way they look but uh overall i, I think it, it's fine it works i don't really understand the coloring 
so much because this is the same colorist as uh, from the first chapter, which I liked with Phil Rachel, uh, Phil Rachelson. But for some reason, we're getting that more orangey skin tone on Shang Chi that you know, uh, really disturbing yellow on Fu Manchu, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm not really sure why that would happen. But uh, you know, I guess that was an editor's choice. I'm not sure. But uh, overall, I th- I thought this chapter uh, was a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it is. I like. I, I get it. It's so James Bondy, and it's just funny to see Shang Chi being blasted out of a torpedo tube. Like it just, <laughs> it just feels so strange. But speaking of wrap up, this actually, this story actually has a one page epilogue by another creative team, Tony Isabella and John Buscema, of all people. And I think it says something about um, if you've ever read histories of Marvel in the seventies. Uh, Marvel was expanding at a rapid rate, and they were the powers that be were increasing the line at an exponential rate and they were just dumping all the work on a handful of people and um marvel wolfman has given interviews back he worked at marvel and tony isabella here talked about like you know all of a sudden marvel apparently some editor or some some muckety muck at the curtis circulation who owned uh marvel at the time basically walked into marvel wolfman's office and said hey we're going to start publishing a line of black and white magazines they're all going to be 48 pages each and they're all going to start next month you know, it's like, and you know, I mean, they had, I mean, and anyone who knows has ever really had to work on this doing an anthology, uh, a 48 page anthology is five times harder than doing a 48 page comic because the 48 page comics got basically the same creative team, but you're doing an anthology. You're all of a sudden working with five creative teams, potentially five different sets of deadlines. And it was a crushing workload. And I think the fact that this story is given an epilogue by a completely different creative team says something about how slapdash this had to get done. It was like, ah, we need somebody to write one page. Tony, can you write it? Okay, all right, okay. <laughs> who's who's here to draw it? Oh, John Buscema, did you just finish your Conan? Here, do this. And it's like this, and it's so funny because in the epilogue, Iron Fist basically reads the newspaper about what happened in the subsequent chapters that we just read and kind of just shrugs and walks away. He just kind of, eh, okay. And then it ends with the Sons of the Tiger reading about how Shang-Chi basically wrapped this story up and they're kind of like, oh, I guess we're kind of losers then because Shang-Chi did all the work. Yeah, okay. And that's the end of the story. It's the most anticlimactic thing imaginable. But to me, it's very charming that like they bothered to check back in with Iron Fist because he was like, oh, yeah, I saw a bunch of mannequins. That was weird. Oh, well, on to the next adventure. I, I, think, it, I think it kind of works because in the chronology um, – when Doug left writing Iron Fist, Tony Isabella took over for him. So it works ah, that Tony, Tony is Tony Isabella is finishing the Iron Fist chapter of the story. I just I love the idea of a superhero reading about the end of their case in a newspaper and just kind of walking away at that point. And it's like, oh yeah, all right, look at that. Batman captured the Joker. That's great. Cool. Anyway, what's in Ziggy this week? You know, what I mean, like I just love that idea. So I I just find that 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 wrap up to be really charming. So. All right, so there's there's three more stories in this comic too. Uh, I, I like there are a couple of things I like about this. I like that the um, the first three panels are very much in the style of the first chapter, you know, because I'm, in the first chapter, Iron Fist I think only has like two lines of dialogue in the whole <laughs> thing, and the rest of it is all captions, and it's kind of the same thing. Uh, and yeah, and he's just reading the paper and he kind of has this smile on his face, and then he walks away, and. Um, uh, and yeah, you know, it, it just, I like, 
it's so funny to me that this thing even has an epilogue. And I think, the, you know, the art is great. Uh, one thing I don't understand, though, is why is Iron Fist a litter bug? Is that what New York <laughs> was like just, in those days? It was, the, it was the 70s in New York. I mean, come on. <laughs> and back then it was okay. To <laughs> they should have taught him better in Kunlun. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. You know, yeah. Kun, Kun, you know, Kunlun is not a mess like that. Come on. Sweet Christmas, Iron Fist. What are you doing? Are you just dropping the newspaper? Yeah. Iron Fist the City dropped dead. So, uh, so okay. So, all right. We'll move on to the, the next story. Uh, this has got no title. It's simply called Master of Kung Fu. It's by Steve Englehart, Alan Weiss, and Alan Milgram. And uh, Shang-Chi gets involved in a sort of fight club, all made up of people who want revenge on Shang-Chi's father, Fu Manchu. When Shang-Chi says that revenge is an ignoble effort, the group challenges him to a fight to the death. Shang-Chi manages to survive without killing anyone, only for Fu Manchu to blow the place up with everyone in it just after Shang-Chi leaves. Uh, wow. Uh, thanks, Dad. Um, <laughs> Max, what did you think of this story? I wanted to like this story more than I did. <laughs> um, th- this is, I think, one of two Steve Englehart stories in this, in this treasury. Yes. Uh, and they both have some characterization characterizations that i have issues with uh some leaning on on um kind of some stereotypical tropes i think there's a there's the kernel of a neat idea in here (laughs) about all these fu manchu rejects who want to band together to try to take him down and that they just kind of come across uh shang chi and they think that he's uh he must be as bad as his father since you know the he the apple doesn't fall far from the tree i guess uh, I think there's a good idea here. I don't think it was necessarily executed well. I do like the fact, though, that it 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 has the same um, it has the same characterization of Fu Manchu being completely ruthless that the last one did. You know, he blew up that submarine full of his henchmen, <laughs> and later on, he blew <laughs> he blows up an entire building of these people that he, you know were once working for him, and that really kind of in this as you know as this treasury tells you a lot about how ruthless Fu Manchu really is you're better off being a henchman for the Joker you had more job (laughs) security than Fu Manchu Ryan what did you think of this uh similar um Inglehart was uh, the the original writer who co-created Shang-Chi and wrote the first couple of issues so this tonally feels more fitting with the early stories of Shang-Chi um definitely before uh, before Doug Munch and, and Paul Galassi came aboard and kind of revolutionized them and made it much more spy espionage type. Uh, so this story feels like more of one of the early things. In terms of the art, whew, um, I really, really like the composition and the way he lays out uh, panels and the figures uh, and like terms of like staging the action and the fight choreography and things like that. But Boy, um, really leaning on some of the subhuman depictions of non-white people in this, and it's okay. Um, yeah, this is this was offensive way before the seventies, so probably didn't need this. Um, yeah, it, it's 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 problematic to look at today, um, and and again, I, I I think that's a shame because. In terms of like the, the staging, the art, and the choreography, I really, really dig it. I think it's cool. But yeah, there's just some characters in here that, that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> this, this is Master Kung Fu as a grindhouse movie. 
Yeah, I mean, that's what this <laughs> is. It's just leaning mm-hmm. into every sort of offensive sort of stereotype you have, like the the guy who's clearly supposed to be gay, and mm-hmm. Fu, Fu Manchu is like a hundred percent yellow. I mean, mm-hmm. like <laughs> when yeah. they colored him, they got the Doctor Martin's dyes out. They were like, yeah, this is yellow. And on on the opening splash page, he's kind of like leaning over and twirl, doing the, the Mister Burns finger thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is this is if Master of Kung Fu had been licensed out to uh, a grindhouse company uh and and put it would have been like a double bill uh in drive-ins uh, i enjoy this story because i just love the ruthlessness of it as that all these people there's this den of you know uh, wretched hive of scum and villainy kind of thing all for them just to get blown up i just it's just like you know Fumichu's just just like yeah I just blow everybody up and shang chi's gonna be like man my father's a pain in the ass like my god <laughs> um alan, i've always liked alan weiss's work but it's very unusual for comic books it's very kind of lush and detail oriented and it i don't think it prints real well on newsprint uh i would imagine if you saw his stuff either as an original art or like on nicer paper it probably would reproduce very well but it's just a very i know he did some stuff for epic um which i imagine probably looks a lot better because that had better quality paper but printing on newsprint doesn't do him a whole lot of favors now here you're seeing it a little bigger uh, which is nice. But as you were talking about Ryan earlier with Herb Trimpey, maybe because this stuff was done for a Black and White magazine, uh, you know, maybe it looked a little different in with these washes as opposed to actually doing it in color. Right. Um, so, but, but yeah, it's, it is, yeah, it is. <laughs> it wasn't, it kind of wasn't cool even then. Uh, things were looser, but even then you're like, oh my God. So, um, so, all right. So uh, let's move on to uh, the next story. This features the Sons of the Tiger. It's by Jerry Conway and Dick Giordano doing an art job for Marvel Comics. It's from Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, number two. Uh, while leaving his martial arts training school, Lin is attacked by a group of ninjas. He fights them off, but sees that his sensei, Master Key, has been mortally wounded. Key explains that Lin is the best martial artist he's ever seen, with only two other students being anywhere as good, and they are named Abe Brown and Robert Diamond. With his dying breath, he points Lin to a set of jade figures in the shape of a tiger's head and paws. To keep the world safe from evil, the three men must become the sons of the tiger. So I got to say, guys, this is kind of my favorite story in the book. Uh, <laughs> partly because it's Dick Giordano. I love Dick Giordano. It's fun to see him playing in the Marvel Universe, which was relatively rare. He did some other Marvel work, but not a lot. And I, I think the art job is great. And I, I don't know, like, I love this. It's a fun origin story. It's preposterous. It's silly. But I, I, I enjoyed it. Am I the only one? Do you guys like this? No, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, why is it this good? Why, why does it work as well as it should? And it's, it kind of, it's sort of like you, you, when you think that uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, name, his one work for Marvel was that Ohatmo drawing of Wonder Man. And it's like, of all the things that this legendary artist could do for the other company, it's that. And you're like, Dick Giordano, legendary DC guy. It's like, okay, he comes to Marvel and it's, he does the origin of Sons of the Tiger? <laughs> like, why? why? Why is he doing this? But because of, the, because of how talented he is and because of Jerry Conway, they turn this kind of silly but very simple story into something that's really fun and really enjoyable. And yeah, this could be a pilot episode for a TV show. I liked it so much, even though they print two pages out of order. Yes, I two pages too. are yes. out of order in this treasury. <laughs> Somebody at the bullpen had a had a uh, a lunch date. They were just like, "Ah, right, yeah, that's fine. Let's go out. We're about it." So, uh, Max, did you like this story? 
Well, yeah, agree. You know, I mean, first, yeah, like you guys were saying, Giordano. I mean, it's <laughs> it's beautiful to look at. The action is great. That panel where where Diamond kicks the guy and the sound effect is just yeah. fills the panel. Oh man, it's so gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, and just it it just I mean, it's it's three guys beating on ninjas. I mean, it's it's fantastic. <laughs> it's but you know, it, and it's a very simple plot. It's 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 basically you killed our master. Now we have to get revenge. It's, you know, something at this point you've already seen a hundred times when this came out, but it's, you know, it's also Jerry Conway and he, he is very good at making simple things interesting. You know, he's, he's very good at making you care about the characters. And I, I think he does, a, he does that here. And, you know, like I said, you know, I, I didn't care about Sons of the Tiger before, but this, this uh, actually makes me really interested in um uh, uh lynn i believe is, his, lynn is, is his... the, the leader of the team yeah uh you know I, it made me care about him and be i'm still not you know I, and i think that's part of the reason i always had a trouble with sons of the tiger is that there was never a whole lot to latch on to there was never anything to connect with uh but this story you know i i've I really, I really enjoy the character of Lynn. The other uh, Abe and Bob are still kind of not fully formed yet, but this is also an origin story, so you can't really expect too much. And you know, I, yeah, I, I think it just, it just, uh, it just works. The the writing and the art, you know, again, elevates the story to be uh, really better than it needed to be. That's fair. Yeah, I would say. I mean. Uh... By the way, Dick Giordano uh, was an about like even though he was you know legendarily a DC artist, he was very open about that. He was not a big superheroes guy. He loved Batman because Batman didn't have superpowers, and so that and you know he, think about some of the stuff that he drew for DC. He did Human Target mm-hmm. and like Johnny Thunder, the 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 detective version. And so it, in a weird way, you could see that if he's going to do a Marvel job, it's not the Hulk. It's not the Fantastic Four. It's the Sons of the Tiger, who, mm-hmm. outside of their jade uh, figurines, really don't have superpowers. <laughs> so it's like you, this is the kind of thing that Giordano would sink his teeth into. But yeah, it's it's so fun to see an artist so associated with DC over here uh, doing Marvel work. But yeah, I read it. I was like, I'm really liking this. I kind of want to read more <laughs> Sons of the Tiger. So I'm so glad that this, they gave him so much so much play in this treasure. This didn't make me necessarily want to read more Sons of the Tiger, but as I've been beating this drum, it, this did make me want to watch their show. And right. I can already <laughs> hear the the opening theme by Mike Post in my head. <laughs> the way it's playing out. Well, and throw a word from Ray not- yeah, and who would not have wanted a patch of that tiger image on page fifty-seven? Oh, you know, it's a when, great logo. Yeah. Oh God. I mean, he you know, Lynn picks up the 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 jade uh, necklace, the the different pieces, and there's this you know, roaring seventies style tiger on the you know that would look great him. on the side of a van. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, tattoos on the van on a patch. I mean, oh yeah, I would have been all over that. <laughs> yeah we may have to start a sons of the tiger podcast here on oh, the fire and water podcast network <laughs> um so okay so we've got one more story one more story to go uh it is also untitled it is by steve engelhart jim starlin and al milgram and it is from deadly hands of kung fu number one uh fu manchu is inquiring uh his henchman uh, with his henchman why his son shang chi has turned his back on him Fu's head priest, Cho Lin, explains, to see, well, explains that to see if Shang-Chi was really as good as he seemed, 
he was subjected to a series of bloody encounters, forcing Cheng Chi to use all of his skills to stay alive. He succeeds, but it's a brutal, bloody affair. When Cho Lin explains that this was all a test to see if Shang Chi is truly worthy to fo- worthy to follow in his father's footsteps, Shang Chi grows enraged and turns his back on his family for good. Fu Manchu is angry at his underlings, realizing that they've they have underestimated his son. So, I mean, I this one was just such an excuse to like rock out because after the setup, it's just six or seven pages of Shang Chi just kicking ass. Uh, and that's fine, but you could tell that that's what it was for. So, what did, Ryan, what did you think of this one? I, I enjoyed it. Um, this was the creative team that uh, that created Shang-Chi. Uh, Jim Starlin was the other co-creator who originated it, and they would have done this ju- just a few months after that creation because Starlin was only on the book for the first three issues, I think, the main one. Um, I, I like the story. I, again, I like the way Starlin was really good at kind of breaking up and doing st- creative stuff with the action. So his art is always great. Um, I like the look of the three main assassins. Again, they've got that the sort of iron fist style, yeah, yeah. like, you know, bandana covering the top part of their head with like their long, the long threads. And, and the one, cause they're kind of wearing like brown, uh, like tinted like clothes and everything. So that reminds me of the, um, the bad guy slingshot from DC, but uh, <laughs> Black Canary and, and Green Arrow. Um, yeah, it's just, it's again, it's another fun one. It's just an excuse for just great art and great kung fu action. Um, this maybe is probably the best depiction and kind of a example. It's interesting that this one is buried at the end because this is probably the most classic example of what uh, a standard Shang Chi story would have been like in the first couple of months of the book. So weird that they buried it at the end, but but at least it's here. I mean, yeah, they did yeah. put it in. So, Max, what did you think? Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was. Uh, I thought I think it works. The I, I think it's a inter- interesting look to. It's, it's an interesting way to take a look at basically young Shang Chi. <laughs> you know of of you know seeing him before he was uh, you know this kung fu super spy where he's still being trained, where he's still being tested by his father. And, um, you know, I, I think that's really cool. And also, like you said, it's, this is basically just an excuse to just show straight out Kung Fu fighting and (laughs) almost from start to finish. And, and it works really well on, on that level. Uh, again, I think the writing by Steve Englehart really, uh, leans into stereotype which I, you know, every time I see old celestial one, I, I wince a little bit and, you know, Starlin, you know, as Ryan was saying, was the co-creator of, of this character in this world. Uh, Man, but, Kevin Feige owes him a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Wow. laughs> and, but this, this, um, the artwork and, and the, the colors by George Russo's, you know, really bothers me as a modern reader. Uh, everyone is a shade of yellow, uh, Fu Manchu is literally has like demon Spock ears. <laughs> you know, there's there's a, a panel on page seventy where you know he he looks more demonic than human, and you know, and I know in, in defense uh, in defense of Starlin, I mean he didn't create Fu Manchu. That was a character mm-hmm. that from the Sax Romer and the Sax Romer stories were pretty racially insensitive. Oh yes, so that's I, I think that was kind of what they had to work with but mm-hmm. yeah yeah no i, well, I definitely no. get those yeah no and i i understand that and i agree but i don't th- 
think in this in what was this 73 not yeah. 74, 74. Five, yeah. so they uh I, I think at that point they knew you didn't have to lean into it <laughs> no <laughs> you know just just the you know i don't think they i think people realize you didn't have to be uh that loyal to or you know to the origins or the early depictions of these characters i think that could have still been softened uh, but you know except for that you know I, I, yeah i mean it's as, especially as a as a kid if i had been reading this at the time this would have been what i wanted just straight up action just straight up fighting shang chi beating people in different ways and and that little bit of uh, of not not a little bit that's that's underselling it the the sense of menace from fu manchu because you, you kind of get the sense that the guy who's who's giving him this bad and i and i like the structure of that by the way too that it's all being told in um in past tense you know this is basically all kind of a flashback except for the the, for the beginning and end of it uh you really get the sense that someone's gonna die <laughs> so someone someone failed Fu Manchu and now someone's got to die. Uh, it doesn't actually happen, which surprises me. Uh, and at the end, the the teacher not only survives, but he's smiling at the end, which makes me wonder if there was something else going on with this teacher afterward or if I'm missing something. Yeah, he gets a dressing down from Fu Manchu, but he seems okay with it. So yeah, I wonder if there's some other subplot that we don't know about because we're just reading this one story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this would have made me want to find out. That's for sure. Yeah, um, I, you know, uh, Ryan, you mentioned earlier the sort of parallel between you know Rachel Ghoul and Batman, and the, I see a lot of that here because uh, Fu Manchu respects his son, even though his son is sort of basically his enemy at this point. He respects him, and he sort of you know again he goes he says to Cho Lin, you know, well you're a fool because you've insulted him by uh, you know using this as a test, and that's you know that gives for as much of a caricature as Fu Manchu is, you're giving him a little bit more depth in that he is, you know, he respects his son and his skills, uh, even though they are, you know, they are, and they are sort of mortal enemies, but he realizes that he's a, he's a fierce warrior and he's brave and stuff like that. And that, that's very much reminiscent of the relationship between Ra's al and Batman, Mm. because he respected Batman, even though Batman was always kind of thwart him and stuff. So, um, yeah, I like the story. It's, it's, it is, again, it's just an excuse to rock out. I mean, that's just what it is. So many of the pages are just, pull, 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 you know, <laughs> it's just totally what, what that is. So um, it, it, it's a fun story. And speaking of Fu Manchu, he wraps up the book on the back cover. There is an original cover by Gil Kane, presumably also Dan Atkins, and it's just a portrait of Fu Manchu. And this looks like what would be the card art for the Fu Manchu playset. Uh, if they had ever done a Mego line of Master of Kung Fu Doll, you could have bought that playset with the big mouth and like the throne room and he sits in and stuff like that. And it's like comes with a little uh, maybe like a little little pot that you could like burn some ashes to make a little mist and stuff. It's a really nice image by by Gil Kane. In my mind, the throne that he's sitting in, which is basically like a giant serpent or dragon's head, uh, that's the head of Fin Fang Foom. <laughs> <That's what laughs> there you go. <laughs> Who presumably is in the movie. Yes, I have heard that <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah, I, I like this. It, it's uh, again, this is this is the Gil Kane era that I like, and there's uh, there's some smoke wafting up from a from a brazier that's that's there, and is it is just you can kind of see how you know it, it's it's really got those echoes of of the Flash. You know, when when the Flash is running, 
and it's it's really just kind of neat to look at i mean this is this is a an image the more you look at it the more there is to see and it's it's giving me kind of a a ming the merciless kind of vibe and also you know uh conan-esque you know just from the the scale of it and yeah i i think it's a it's a it's a pretty good depiction of, of Fu Manchu. Again, the coloring bothers me a little bit and the long nails, but again, you know, that is, those are the long nails, especially that are very much a part of the character. Altogether. It's a really nice package uh, of, of stories. Um, it, again, it's, it's sort of like an early trade paperback and then it's collecting material, uh, multiple stories across, uh, I guess, you know, it was all in one book, but it's, it's collecting stories that you wouldn't normally get. And again, it's got the nice wraparound covers and it's presumably maybe introducing the more traditional Marvel audience to this material that they probably wouldn't see if those magazines were sort of tucked in the back uh, behind the Savage Swords of Conan. But when I was a kid, those magazines were not stocked next to the comics. They were put with the magazines and I didn't, was a kid, I didn't always wander over there because like, over there was like Easy Rider and like Soldier of Fortune. And I didn't like look at that stuff. But the, that's where Savage Sword of Conan was. And so that was probably where Deadly Hands of Kung Fu was. So overall, it's, it's, it's a really nice package. And it says something about the popularity of Shang-Chi that he got his own treasury. Uh, a lot of Marvel characters didn't. I mean, you know, across the street over, Wonder Woman never got her own treasury. Nor did Flash or Green Lantern. But Shang-Chi did. So, uh, you know, good, good on him. And now he's a movie star. I think it's a complete, it's a very solid treasury. I mean, an- anthologies are always a little hit or miss, but I don't think any of these stories are terrible. And, and I, I would not, uh, I would never tell anybody, oh no, don't read that part. You know, you can skip that part. I, th- I think all of these are, uh, you know, have something to say about these characters. And I, I wouldn't use the word necessarily essential, but I think it's a excellent introduction for like, as you were saying, Rob, you know, it's, it's a great introduction for someone who might not know these characters or who just want to find out more. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a really, it's a really good book. And I'm glad uh, that, uh, I mean, we're going to, we were going to get to it eventually because I like it so much, but it's great that there's a movie now and uh, Shang-Chi will be a household name pretty soon. It's amazing to think that we all live in a time where Iron Man, nobody knew Iron Man, nobody knew <laughs> Iron Man except comic nerds. And now Iron Man is everywhere. Every kid knows Iron Man. There's shirts. There's everything. So uh, maybe that will happen for, and uh, we saw that's what happened with uh, Black Panther. And hopefully that's what will happen with Shang-Chi. So I'm very excited to see the movie. So uh, guys, thank you for coming on to talk about this book with me. I've been so excited to get to this one. So this was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. And uh, I agree with everything you said. It's a fun book. And uh, everybody go see the movie, but make sure that you're safe when you do it. Get vaccinated, mask up if you have to go to a crowded theater, and uh, yeah, take care of yourself. But uh, enjoy it because it should be a lot of fun. Good advice. Thank you so much, Max. Well, thank you. And just, and just to echo what what um, what Ryan said, yeah, just uh, you know, if you're going to go out, do it safely, but in, enjoy this movie because this is a great character, and I think they are going to do him justice. I'm I am really excited about this. It's not again, it's not the Shang Chi that that. Uh, you'll find in the comic books, or at least not the, not this era of comic books, but it still looks like Shang Chi to me. I mean, I see Shang Chi in that in those clips, and I'm totally excited about seeing that. So yeah, read Shang Chi comics, watch the movie, you know, get get into it, get the Slurpee cup, everything. Get, oh yeah.
<laughs> what are what are we supposed to do with these three jade amulets now? <laughs> there, there, my mind is tingling right now. That means I have to get to the listener feedback section. Uh, I, I I still say we talked about this on one of your shows, I think, Ryan, and I think I pitched this idea or somebody did, but I really think Marvel should do a series of movies that are just simply with a subtitle Marvel Team Up, mm-hmm. and they simply mm-hmm. take two characters that they've put into the movies and smash them together. And to me, that's what I want to see going forward. I want to see the guardians of the galaxy and Shang-Chi, you know, I want to see Spider-Man and the Eternals. This is what I want. And I really think they should do that. Cause you could, you know, if, if some character can't necessarily carry a whole movie, put them together with a slightly more popular character. And so I'm hoping Shang-Chi again, I haven't seen the movie yet. I hope I like it. But I hope it's a big success. I mean, all the Marvel movies have been. They haven't had a, a loss yet. So I hope it's a big success, and I hope uh, Shang-Chi lives on as a, uh, as a movie star. It ought to be a, a lot of fun. So, so okay, everybody, um, thank you so much for listening. I want you to stay tuned. We're going to play some podcast promos. And when I come back, I'm going to do some listener feedback. In 1974, four men literally changed the face of rock and roll forever. Gene Simmons, Peter Chris. Ace Freely and Paul Stanley wanted to become the band they never got to see. Over the next 40 plus years, the music, the makeup, the merchandise, and the loyal fan base have propelled KISS to one of rock and roll's elite groups. With KISS heading down their end-of-the-road tour, we thought we would start our journey. Turn it up to 10 because we love it loud. Right Between the Eyes is a podcast all about our favorite band, KISS. We will be covering all eras of KISS with the various albums, studio, live, and compilations, plus album mashups and more. We will also cover solo and band projects from all members, past and present, while also looking at the various bands that have opened for KISS as well. Not to mention all of the fun items in the KISS catalog. TV appearances, long-form videos, merchandise, comic books. Come on, the list goes on and on. Coming in late May, early June 2021 to a podcast platform near you. Follow us on Twitter at RBTE Podcast. Loud. I want to hear it loud. Right between the eyes. I want to hear it loud. Welcome, one and all, to the Fire and Water Racetrack and Arena. Please direct your attention to the center of the track, where you will see 36 buses lined up between two ramps, a tank full of live man-eating sharks, and a high wire stretching over it all. The rocket cycle is warmed up and all the nets have been removed. Who would attempt these stunts just to entertain and inspire his audience? What kind of man? What kind of hero? There, coming in on a rocket-powered skateboard, it's the death-defying human flycast! Join me, Max Romero, and a rotating roster of guests as we dive headfirst into the colorful comics of Marvel's The Human Fly. The death-defying Human Fly cast is a limited episode podcast spotlighting the adventures of a man who comes back from a crippling auto accident to become a mysteriously masked stuntman with a mission to inspire others to never give up hope. We'll also talk about the real-life Human Fly, a daredevil with a murky past and a desire to be the best stuntman in history until the day he just disappeared. 
The actual human fly would vanish as suddenly as he had materialized, but not before sparking a comic series featuring what would be the wildest superhero ever. Because he was real! The death-defying human fly cast. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's gonna be wild. And we're back with listener feedback, and this is going to be the feedback for TreasureCast episode 60, Laugh Olympics, with my guest, Sean Myers. Uh, we're going to get right to the comments from the website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. So first up, Clinton Robinson, who says, Laugh Olympics is probably the closest I could ever get to participating in an actual sporting event. I had absolutely no knowledge of this treasury before this episode, but I do vaguely remember watching a few episodes of the cartoon as a child. I was obviously too young for it because I couldn't quite make sense of how Scooby-Doo and Shaggy were able to interact with Yogi Bear and Boo-Boo. Thanks for covering this treasury and opening my eyes to just how scary a world without Thursdays could be. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a hard lesson we all had to learn uh, thanks to the Laugh Olympics, Clinton. Uh, thank you for commenting. Uh, Martin Gray uh, from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog says, Thanks for another great episode. It's always fab to hear Sean on a show. He's highly entertaining. <sighs> I remember the Laugh Olympics on telly when I was still a kid, and I still have no idea who Snooper and Blabber are. It always bothered me that it wasn't Laugh Olympics, which it surely should have been. Paul Norris is in here? Mind blown. Mark Evanier is still doing great Comic-Con jokes. In this week's wonderful Gru meets Tarzan special with Sergio Aragones, I posted the spread on the Trudgy Comics Twitter feed. I see there's a new Hanna-Barbera Yogi uh, Bear cartoon coming. It looks utter pants, those redesigns. <laughs> I'll take your word for it, Martin. Uh, Matt Saroy says, wow, Laugh Olympics. I had no idea this ever made it into comics form. I love this show. All those great cartoon characters together. It's like Hanna-Barbera's crisis crossovers. I used to get genuinely upset when the really rottens would win by cheating. Where are the officials? Why is this being allowed? They've admitted their scheme right on camera. They need to enact instant replay. I'm sorry the show was so stressful for you. Uh, Al Gerding says, great episode. I'm a Blue Falcon Mark. Brave for you to admit that, Al. Brian McGaw says, I'm on the hunt for these cartoon previews. I definitely remember watching those. Thanks for the terrific podcast. Thank you, Brian. Dr. Ann says, I didn't know this existed, and it sounds like a complete hoot. I remember the Laugh Olympics. I was definitely a fan of the Yogi Yahooies. Those are my people. I probably identify most with Yogi and Top Cat, sarcastic, clever guys who get into trouble when they truly think they're the smartest person in the room. But me in a fedora and a tie in Top Cat's alley, I'm there. It is a bit nutty that this is a time travel story, and I honestly thought for a second Ranger Smith was the bad guy. I swerved my car in traffic. Lastly, I was just at Terrificon, and a couple of dealers had treasuries, but they were loose in a box, relatively scragged, and had post-it notes that said $60 or more. So no purchases. Thanks again for a great show. Unga bunga. <laughs> You're welcome, man. Yeah, $60 is for, for beat-up treasuries is ridiculous, even for like uh, Super Henry's Muhammad Ali or something. That's, that's, that's a crazy price. So I can understand why you stayed away from them. Uh, also, Ange followed up. He says, I forgot to mention that I'm a big-time sports fan, following the pros and cheering on my teams. I'm a big college basketball fan. I know that puts me in the minority, a small overlay on the Venn diagram. Um, I do enjoy uh, baseball, Ange. That's the only real sport that I follow. And I go, of course, I follow the Olympics, as I talked about. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, I guess comics and sports fans are not a big mix. I guess that's why DC's strange sports stories never really took off. 
Professor Chuck Coletta says, I've never watched one moment of the actual Olympics and have no interest in sports. The Laugh Olympics and Battle of the Network Stars are the only sporting events I've ever watched. Nothing compares to that Gabe Kaplan-Robert Conrad rivalry. <laughs> okay. Ro- uh, Roger Preep says, another great episode, and I have to recommend the Flintstones comic from DC. It was my favorite comic of that year. Good to know, Roger. Jeff Polier says, good discussion, Rob and Sean. This sounds like it'd be a lot of fun to read, so I hope I win. Uh, yes, I will be announcing the uh, winner of the book for this con- and the, the contest I announced last episode uh, at the end of this feedback segment. So stay tuned, everybody. Uh, Joe Cabrera says, "Ah, I would have loved more talk about the particular stories, but still a jam-packed episode. It's nice seeing all the Hanna-Barbera characters assembled with the preachiness of Yogi's gang. Anyone remember that 70s atrocity? It's where everyone, uh, almost everyone becomes incredibly naive and gets taken by some terribly corny villain like Dr. Bigot. Dr. Bigot, Smokestack Smog, or the Gossipy Witch of the West, until one HP character finally gets everyone to realize what's going on. Making cartoons to appease parent groups is the worst. I, Dr. Bigot, that sounds really fun. <laughs> Just look that up, Joe. Ted J. Killington says, Hey, Rob, another great episode of Treasury Cast. As always, I'm a huge fan of Mark Veneer, reading his blog daily, and I really appreciated hearing his anecdotes about the production of this edition. And a copy of this would go really well with the other treasuries in my collection. Steve Givens says, shut up. You had me with Grape Ape on the cover. All right, Steve. Edo Boznar says, wow, Mark Evander strikes again. What a great behind-the-scenes story. Anyway, I know you went over the background of these Marvel Hanna-Barbera treasuries when you covered the Flintstones one a few years ago, but I still find the fact of their existence a bit of a head trip, especially this one, which not only involves the Laugh Olympics, but also time travel. And I agree that the section featuring the comics convention was probably drawn by Dan Spiegel. Thank you, Edo. Cisco from our network says, nice show as usual. The Laugh Olympics were a favorite too. My relationship to sports is similar to Sean's. Hey, if he's trying to get a bingo card, he should ask about our deals on Tuesday slots. And I'm trying to think if I had a favorite team. Probably the Humano-centric gang headed by Fred Flintstone and Scooby-Doo because it had superheroes in it. But my feeling is that the funny animals usually did better. Is there someone I could go back and track the medals across the entire series, I wonder? Kevin Mayle says, uh, you know who deserves treasure treatment? Great babe. Another fan of Grape Ape uh, there, Steve Givens. Yeah, uh, of course, a giant character would lend itself to the oversized format. Good good call, Kevin. Chris Franklin, also from our network, says, Fun show, guys. I had no idea this comic existed. I love the Lamp Olympics. It did indeed seem to be the first all-star crossover of previously existing cartoon characters. I wonder if the concurrent Battle of the Network Stars was also an inspiration, in addition to the real Olympics. It seemed like the Laugh Olympics were re-aired by ABC over the years, maybe when the Olympics came back around. I seem to recall seeing it again on the network in the 80s. I brought it up here before, but as a kid, I frequented Kings Island theme park near Cincinnati, Ohio, and they had a Hanna-Barbera land with all the rides and attractions being based on Hanna-Barbera characters. Plus, there were costume versions of the characters walking around, so it was kind of like being in the middle of this comic, bumping into Scooby-Doo, but then turning the corner, and there's Yogi Bear. It was wonderful. Yeah, we've talked about that before, Chris. That does sound really cool. I wish I had had a chance to to go to that place. Uh, Brian Linton says, as much as I loved when uh, Paramount brought Kings Island, you could run into a Klingon while waiting in line for a ride. I still miss the days when I could get a high five from Scooby. Uh, one of these years, we'll have to visit my parents when the park is open so I could take my wife and daughter. Actually, one of my brothers just moved back to the area, and I believe his company holds their annual picnic at KI. Maybe I can score some tickets off of him? Hmm. In regards to the actual Olympics, we tend to watch the first week of the summer games pretty religiously because my wife, daughter, and I were slash are all competitive swimmers. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, once the games transition from swimming to track and field, our interest tends to wane. Jody Yurden says, I also had that Smurf ice cream at Canada's Wonderland, which too had a Hanna-Barbera land, and it was awesome. Wow. Okay. Uh, Brent Goddard says, this is my first show listening, and it caught my attention because of the Laugh Olympics. 
Treasury Edition, uh, since it was the first treasury I'd ever owned and was part of a long and happy comic collecting experience into the mid-90s. Great podcast. I look forward to listening to many more you still offer from the past and to future podcasts. Thank you, Brett. I can't believe the Laugh Olympics is this much of a new audience driver. I really thought it was kind of a, a you know, not risky show to do, but going to be one of the less popular ones. But man, I, we got more comments on this episode than uh, most other ones, even like more than like the Alex Ross show. So you never know. Uh, continuing on, Paul Wilneberger says, Crisis on Earth, Hanna-Barbera. Another great Treasure Guest episode. Sean was a terrific co-host coming in with a lot of knowledge and fondness for the characters. Being a child of the 70s, my favorite Laugh Olympics team was the Scooby Doobies. Not only were Scooby and Shag, the original Shag, on the team, but it included Bill Falcon, Blue Falcon, Dynamite, Captain Caveman, Hong Kong Fooey, and Speed Bucky. As much as they look great, babe, those other characters were the ones I grew up with. Mark Baker writes, says, uh, love Laugh Olympics as a kid, although I never knew about the comic books, let alone the treasury as a kid. I was alive when they came out, but perhaps just a touch too young to notice them. I did, however, have a giant coloring book that, although it wasn't Laugh Olympics branded on the cover, it's called Fantastic Christmas World, featured a Christmas-themed Laugh Olympics story. An oddity, though, instead of the Scooby-Doobies, one of the teams was the Megilla Gorillas. Megilla ponders if they have bananas at the North Pole. Although I confess the similar disappointment at hearing the synopsis of the Treasury, not really that no actual Laugh Olympics game is being played, Stone Age antics notwithstanding, it did sound like a fun story. As a one-time watcher of Lois and Clark, I couldn't help but expect someone to say, duh, every time the villain Tempest's name was mentioned. Seriously, Lane Davies' Tempest was probably the best part of Lois and Clark. Looking forward to the next one. Thank you, Mark. Isamu Hideki Yukinori, son of our pal Zoom, says, I watched old Hanna-Barbera cartoons from my dad's DVDs, not the Laugh Olympics one. I should give that a try. I did enjoy the old Flintstones cartoon and asked Dad to buy me issue one of the Flintstones DC comic a few years ago when it came out, but I didn't like it then because I was expecting it to be like the cartoon. Dad thought it was brilliant, though, and called it Earth 2 Flintstones. So I guess the book had the Zoom stamp of approval, Mr. Myers. Oh, and that's a great Snagglepuss voice, Mr. Kelly. Thank you, Isamu, and uh, drop the Mr. Kelly stuff. Uh, Kyle Benning says, great episode. Always great to hear Sean on a podcast. Glad to see slash hear him added to the rich lineup of Treasury Cast guest hosts. This treasury is a total mystery to me, and I've never been able to find it or any of the other Hanna-Barbera treasuries and regular-sized comics published by Marvel. They are incredibly difficult to find. That's quite the crazy story about the hectic publishing schedule and meeting the deadline in three weeks. And so sad that they never published the other treasury that was completed. Absolutely, Kyle. I, that just kills me that that material is sitting in a drawer somewhere just collecting dust. Uh, Paul Kian says, awesome episode. Great to hear Sean and Rob together. I also did not know this existed. I was never as big a fan of the comics during HB characters. I had a few of them when I was younger. Although I could tolerate Scooby and the gang, the rest of them left me meh. But this story sounded like a blast. And the behind-the-scenes info about Mark and Veneer was really interesting. So thanks for that, Rob. Well, thank you, Paul. Uh, and thank you, uh, Mark and Veneer, for writing all about it on your website. It was great. I, I am uh, friends with Mark, and I thought about reaching out to him. I think I even said that last episode. But then I realized... He wrote all about it on his website. I didn't, fuck, I didn't need to bother him to ask about a comic he wrote 45 years ago. Uh, Sauntermont says, I would be interested in possibly winning the comic as it would be fun to read to my son. I keep, <laughs> you're, trying to, you're trying to lean on me a little, Sauntermont. I, I appreciate that. Dallin Baumgarten says, as soon as you mentioned the Scooby gang walking into a combo convention, my ears perked up like a great dame. I, too, had just read the very recently released Gru Meets Tarzan comic from Dark Horse, featuring a hilarious double-page spread of Mark and Veneer and Sergio Aragones walking to a comic convention as drawn by Sergio. I bought the issue primarily for that, but it's a fun comic regardless. Highly recommended. I'd also throw out my two cents to say that the 12-issue DC Flintstone series from 2016 is well worth a read. As always, a great episode. Oh, and I'm praying you've not yet maneuvered your random giveaway. I'm gunning for that treasure. All right, down. 
Captain Entropy says, please don't consider me a contest entrant because I think others will enjoy Astrodrome more than I will. I definitely enjoyed hearing about it, though. Um, and this afternoon, when Cheers cast had not yet popped up on my feed, I had to refresh. My first thought was, oh, no, did someone steal Thursdays? Uh, Michael says, I so want to own this comic. Uh, I read some of the team-up uh, Hanna-Barbera DC comics when they were mostly, and they were mostly pretty fun. I think the best one is probably the Huckleberry Hound and Green Lantern comic. They made a new cartoon with pretty much every Hanna-Barbera character for HBO Max called Jellystone. I did not know that, Michael. So, again, thanks, everybody, for the comments. Wow, this, this episode was a bonanza for comments. You guys really got excited about the Laugh Olympics. So, uh, yes, uh, the contest. As I said, I'm going to give away a copy of this Laugh Olympic treasure. I have no idea how I ended up with two copies, but I do so. What I did was I took all the names of people uh, who left the comment, except for Captain Entropy, who very kindly uh, absented himself from the contest, and I put it in a hat that I have, and I shook it up, and I pulled a name completely at random. I shut my eyes and pulled my name, pulled a name out. And so the winner of the Laugh Olympics treasury book is Martin Gray. So, Martin, um, send me your address, and uh, we will send uh, the uh, the Firewater Network. We'll send the treasury over to you, and I hope you enjoy it. And uh, thanks, everybody, for playing. I'm sorry that you didn't win. I wish I had more copies to distribute. Um, I promise if I ever see some more copies at a treasury, at a uh, convention that are not $60, I'll, I'll pick a few of them up. I've been doing that over the years. I've been buying treasuries on the cheap to give them away as prizes and stuff. And uh, it makes people really happy uh, to get a treasury in the mail. And so uh, I, I will continue that as, uh, as the show goes on. So thank you everybody for the comments. I really appreciate um, all of them and all the interest in this episode. And, uh, and let's congratulate Martin Gray for his uh, winning of the Laugh Olympics treasury. So that is going to do it for this episode of Treasury Cast. Big thanks to Ryan Daly and Max Romero for coming by to talk about uh, the uh, – the Savage Fist of Kung Fu. That was, as I said, it was a book I wanted to get to for a long time. And I'm glad that the movie is out and uh, we can all sort of enjoy Shang-Chi together. So again, big thanks to them for, for coming by. So uh, of course, as I said, all the back episodes of this show are on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to Treasury Cast on any podcatcher of your choice. We're always talking treasuries over on Twitter at Treasury Comics. And then finally, if you want to support the Find Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. There you're going to lock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So a big thanks to Jeff Pollier and new Patreon supporter Brett Young uh, for their support of Treasury Cast. I really appreciate it. We've got two Patreon supporters. Thank you so much, Jeff and Brett. I very much appreciate it. So uh, that is going to do it for this month. Again, thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you next month. But until then, go big or go home. Thank you. Good job.